17 and Martin Luther, what he began then, and the done deal that he accomplished when he tacked those 95 theses onto the church door in Wittenberg. Is, is, is that the purpose that brings us together on Reformation Sunday? Well, I think the Reformers would answer, no, may it never be so. That's how Reformers talk, I think. Reformation is actually about the present. Reformation is about you and me right now in this moment, and it is about all of us together being reformers. If you've been around the church, very Verilesia Semper Reformanda. You heard that before? You should raise your hand and impress your friends. Maybe you've heard the English translation of it, which is this. The church reformed and always reforming. It's kind of become a slogan for the past few hundred years. The church reformed and always reforming. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Sounds uh, very present, very progressive. Sounds like the way we should be, always reforming. But the problem is that this common translation of the Latin phrase is not the correct translation. The original phrase first appeared in a book in 1674, a devotional book written by a Dutch pastor named Jodicus van Lodenstein. And according to author and scholar and pastor Michael Horton, this is what van Lodenstein originally wrote. The church is reformed and always being reformed. Always Excuse me, the church is reformed and always being reformed. So the original phrase is not always reforming, but rather always being reformed. Now, it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. And it's a a difference that impacts our life in the world right now. When you misquote that saying, the church becomes active. The church chooses to change itself as cultural winds shift to accommodate those changes. But when the phrase is used as it was written, the church is not active, the church is passive. We are being acted upon by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Author and pastor Kevin DeYoung writes this, Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctuations, but about firm foundations. It's about radical adherence to the Holy Scriptures, no matter what the cost to ourselves, our traditions, or our own fallible sense of cultural relevance. If Christians want to change the church's sexual ethics, so be it. But don't claim the mantle of the, refor- of the reformers in so doing. The only reformation worth promoting and praying for is the one that gets us deeper into our Bibles, not further away. Michael Horton says that the reformers wanted to recover something that had been lost, not follow the winds of rising modernity. If the church can never stand still, it's because it always needs reorientation according to the word that is over us. So reforming and being a reformer is not about being progressive. 
It's actually about being backward. As you and I look back to Scripture, always seeking the power of the Spirit to change us through that word. Reformation and being reformed is not about changing that word for our comfort or for cultural accommodation. And that's why this Sunday, Reformation Sunday, is so important. And it's why that this Sunday, Reformation Sunday, is not for the faint of heart. Because it focuses us on the Word of God. And it challenges you and me to be faithful to the Word. That's what makes us reformers. Those who are committed to the Word of God. Reforming our lives by the truth of that Word unashamedly adhering to and proclaiming God's word on October 27th, 1917, 19, <laughs> oh Lord, it's going to be a long, buckle up, it's going to be a long service, it's 2019, I know that, but make no mistake about it, being a reformer is not safe, neither is it easy, Martin Luther's life is a testament to that. Nevertheless, you and I must be reformers and seek reformation in our own lives. That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we come to God's Word, Jeremiah chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, if you take them out now and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you're going to find that on page 634. Page 634, Jeremiah Chapter 7, when you found your place, let's stand so we can hear read together the word of the living God. This is the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to the place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did in Shiloh. 
and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word, all of it. Lord, we thank you for speaking your truth and that you speak it directly. And so we pray now, Spirit of God, that your truth and only your truth from your word word would penetrate our hearts or drive it deep uh, within us and use it to change and transform and reform us. That's why we come here under the authority of your word and the power of your spirit. So we ask you to do this in us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. These first, teen, first 15 verses in Jeremiah are actually just part of a longer sermon that continues on through chapter 8, verse 3. But in the section we read this morning, there are two words that are repeated. And repeated words are repeated to get our attention. Uh, they, they stand out. And often repeated words form the theme of what's being said, and such is the case in these verses this morning. There are two repeated words. The first word, if you look in verses 3 and 5, you'll find it there. The word is amend or sometimes translated reform. Look in verse 3. Amend, reform your ways and your deeds. And again in verse 5, amend, reform your ways and your deeds. The second word is found in verses 4 and 8. And this word is deceptive. Look in verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And then in verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. This morning we're going to look at both of these words because they give clarity to us for what it means for you and for me to to be reformed and to become reformers. So we're going to take the second word first. First we're going to look at the word deceptive. The word translated deceptive here sometimes simply means a flat out lie. But sometimes the word has a more nuanced meaning as it does in the verses before us this morning. Where it means a trick or that which is false but credible. That which is false but credible. And herein lies the danger for the people of ancient Israel. And for you and for me today, the words, the ideas, the teaching they embrace sound believable. Sound like they could be true. Sound like they should be true. They're words that the people want to be true, but they are not true. They are trickery. They are false. And either... Because the Israelites believed they could be true, or should be true, or because they wanted them to be true, then they embraced them and they built their lives around these credible but false words. They were deceived into making decisions about how they lived their lives based on what was not true. Now look, out of all the truths that the people of Israel could have used to to build their lives upon, out of all the truths that they could have chosen to place their hope in, the people of Israel at that time chose to put all their eggs in one basket of quote-unquote truth. And you see that in verse 4. 
look there. Here's their truth. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Perhaps Jeremiah puts that phrase in these people's mouths three times to emphasize just how much value and how much trust and hope they placed in the temple of the Lord. But Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. Listen, it's the subtlety of the deception that is so dangerous. It's the subtlety of the deception that's so dangerous. The words they say, the words they believe, the words upon which they build their hopes are credible but false. And so here's the credible part about the temple. It is truly a very special, sacred, holy place. Would you turn back in the New Testament to 2 Chronicles chapter 7? And when you find it, keep your finger there because we're going to be going back and forth. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 363. Page 363, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now these chapters of Chronicles 6 and, and 7, they describe the dedication of the temple that Solomon had built. And it's the temple that Jeremiah is standing in right now delivering this message to these people. After Solomon had concluded his prayer of dedication for that temple, look what it says happened in chapter 7, verse 1. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. The temple, very special place. God appeared to Solomon at night. And he said to him, this is chapter 7, look down in verse 12. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And so this is the truth about the temple of God. It is his dwelling place on earth. And so the people built their lives on this truth and what they implied or reasoned from it. They believed that if God dwelled in this temple, then God must forever protect the place where he dwells. And if he must forever protect the place where he dwells, then he also must forever protect his people who worship in that place. That sounds like it could be true, doesn't it? Sounds like it should be true. It's certainly what the people wanted to be true. So saying what was true, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, became like a magic charm, like a talisman for these people. But here's the deception and what's so dangerous. They only embraced part of the truth about the temple, the part they liked, the part that cost them nothing to believe. Credible, but false. The reality is there is a fuller meaning 
and a completer truth concerning the temple. The full truth is that on the same day that Solomon dedicated the temple, before God sent his glory to fill it, Solomon acknowledged this. Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18. Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. See, God doesn't really dwell in a man-made house. On that same day, Solomon prays four times. This is also in chapter 6, verses 21, 30, 33, and 39. That God would hear from heaven your dwelling place. Four times. Solomon acknowledges that heaven is God's dwelling place. So don't be deceived. The temple was not God's dwelling place on earth. God would not be homeless if something should happen to the temple. Heaven is his dwelling place. The temple is simply the place where God visually demonstrated his presence with his people before he took on flesh, made his dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In the temple, God had placed the things that he would use to present his truth and his work among his people until Jesus Christ could do all that the temple represented. In the temple was the golden candlestick. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. In the temple was the table upon which there was always displayed the bread because Jesus Christ is the bread of life. In the temple was the sacrifice, the altar for sacrifice, because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. In the temple was the holy of holies, separated from the rest of the temple by that heavy, thick curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, opening access to us, to God the Father. It was because God loved his people so much, because God wanted them to get it, because he wanted them to understand who he was and all he would be to them and all he would do for them, that God allowed himself to be represented by these things and that he would condescend to allow himself to be limited in place in that temple. God allowed his presence to be limited for the sake of the simple. That's you and me. We're finite people. We have the enormity and the immensity of the wondrous work of the infinite and immeasurable one and only true and living God. People. The people who did not embrace the whole truth. So back to Solomon. Let's look in chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles, verses 30 and 31. That God would forgive and render to each whose heart you know all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in you. The temple was always for those whose heart was for God. For those who feared the Lord, that's the truth. The if-then statements that God put before them with 14 of Second Chronicles, please humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I'll down in verse 19. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments, 
and go and serve other gods and worship them. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all people passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because your father brought them out of the land of Egypt to serve them. Therefore, he has brought this, all this disaster on them. You see, God has always been after the heart. God has always been after obedience from the heart. That's the whole truth. The temple, the temple, the temple is nothing without the God of the temple, without a relationship with Him. It's just a building and there's no safety in it. And to believe otherwise is to be deceived, to have false hope, and to ultimately go back to Jeremiah chapter 7. And look in verse 12. That was in Shiloh, where I made my name, which I did to it, because of the place of worship. And in that place there was some sort of a house or temple built there. But because of the evil of God's people, God destroyed that. What if the people had been called the temple, the temple, the temple? Which is this sermon that we've read this morning. This temple in which he delivers it is going to be completely destroyed. It's the hope that the people placed in the temple to come to that rebuilt temple. And Jesus would call that rebuilt temple a den of robbers, just as this temple is called a den of robbers by Jeremiah. In A.D. 70, that temple too will be destroyed. A pile of rubble. See the destruction that comes from believing half truths what's most comfortable or what's most convenient to believe or what costs you believing that is going to in what truth or because we think the partial truth is way it should for us instead of saying the temple the temple the temple we say grace 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 does grace exist does it Absolutely. Is grace a beautiful reality in our lives? Absolutely. Is it true that God, by His grace in Christ Jesus, gives us for absolutely free that which we do not deserve? Is that true? Is it true that God's grace cost Christ everything, His life? Is that true? Does your life absolutely depend upon the grace of God. Does it? Does it? Absolutely. But what's the whole truth about grace? See, too often we interpret grace, grace, grace as license, license, license to do what we want to do and then expect God to forgive us. Don't be deceived. Or we believe that we don't have to do any of the things that God requires of us. Things that are mentioned here in verse 5 of chapter 7, like executing justice, watching out, and standing up for the marginalized in society, such as the, the sojourner, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. We think we don't have to do those things and that God in His grace accepts that from us. Don't be deceived. Or perhaps we think it's okay 
to make God second to a whole list of other things in our lives. The things that we truly get passionate about. The things that really get us going. The things that we really hope in. The things that we go to if we really want to have a sense of satisfaction. All of those things, or people, are idols. And we think God's grace makes it okay for us to have them and for us to put those things before Him. Oh, God in His grace will understand. Do not be deceived. What's the whole counsel of God? Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Titus 2.11 The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good. hope this shows you and me how dangerous partial truths can be. How deceptive they are. Wrong believing leads to wrong practice. And because these people believed wrongly about the temple and its power, they lived their lives wrongly. Look in verse 9. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing these nations. See, because they believed wrongly, they literally lived abominably. And then they come to the temple and say, all over again, wrong belief leads to wrong practice. Which means, conversely, that right belief, orthodoxy, leads to right practice, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. And the two of them must always go together. Jesus said, what therefore... God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, he was talking about marriage in that passage, but it is certainly and equally true here. God has always joined together orthodoxy with orthopraxy. They must never be separated. God has always wanted his people to believe the right things about him and about who he is and about who we are before him, and from that right belief to have right practice in our lives. Think about the Ten Commandments, how they're designed. The first commandments talk about God, who He is, what He's like. You'll show have no other gods before me. You shall have no graven images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And he, and, he, and he explains why. Right belief about God. And after that's in place, what does God do next? He goes to the second table of the Ten Commandments, right? And there follows right practice, orthopraxy. You know, He tells us, in living our lives, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. You cannot separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy. Test yourself in this. Are y'all going okay? This is long. Good. All right, test, test this when you get home. 
And, and take out your Bible and, and turn to the letter of Romans and look through the first 11 chapters of Romans. And you're going to find there lots of orthodoxy. It is deep, it's heavy, it's beautiful theology and what we call doctrine. First 11 chapters. Then you'll come to that famous chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, because of those first 11 chapters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. See, that's orthopraxy. Now that you believe right, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now live rightly. The same thing is true in Ephesians. Test that. The first three chapters of Ephesians concern orthodoxy, right believing, right doctrine. And then you come to chapter 4, four one. Paul says, I therefore, based on orthodoxy, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Orthopraxy. And the rest of the letter focuses on right living and right behaving. Titus, chapter 3, verse 8, brings the two together. This, is a trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God, orthodoxy, may be careful to devote themselves to good works, orthopraxy. You cannot separate the two. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can. And that's why being a reformer is not for the faint of heart. Reformation is not just an event that took place 500 years ago. Reformation has to take place in your life and my life every single day. And don't forget this. One whose goal is to deceive. Who wants you and me, to build our lives on half-truth. If we do, it will lead. Revelation chapter 12 speaks about the great who is called the devil and lie. Deceptive. Do deceived. So what hope is there? For people who have torn asunder, who have separated that which God has joined together. I'm glad you asked that question. Because that brings us to of the length of the first word. And God's people said, Amen. The second word that forms the theme of this sermon is amend or reform your ways in verses 3 and verse 5. And the word amend means to make a thing good, right, or beautiful. To make a thing good, right, or beautiful. To do something. And so this is orthopraxy. And Jeremiah uses it here in command form because he uses it to put hope in this world and walk well. G.K. Chesterton is always right about what's wrong. However, he's often wrong about what's right. So, if you are right about what's wrong, separated orthodoxy from orthopraxy, then don't be wrong about the right thing to do. And the right thing, be a person of the Word of God. That's the right thing to do. That's the right that corrects the wrong. To really love the Word of God. David words, like silver refined in a furnace Seven times. Pure 
and true is the word of God. You will not find purity of word, purity of truth anywhere else. And so we've got to know the word. We've got to reform the word. Psalm 19.7. David writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Revive your soul with the world. In 19.10, he writes, More to be desired than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Reform your life. Reward yourself by knowing Christ. He is the living word. The word through the written word. And so to know the oxygen and to living beautifully. And that's what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If we know him, we keep his commandments, orthopraxy. And so this is the plea for this Reformation Sunday. Here it is. Be a person of the word of God. If that requires that you amend or reform your interaction with God's word, then do it. Reform your interaction with this word so that you do it often. Don't be satisfied with a cursory understanding of God's word. An understanding that is neither detailed nor is it thorough. Don't be satisfied with what someone else told you was in the word of God. Find out for yourself. Right belief leads to right practice. Reform your life so that you know the word of God and all that it promises to you and requires of you. Jude writes this in his letter. It's only one chapter, verse 3. He writes about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once delivered for all, for all times. The word of the Lord remains forever. Do you believe that? For all people, for every culture, you and I are no exception. We are not so unique that we get a pass or that somehow God is going to deal with us differently. We are not an exception to the rule. And it is not up to us to rewrite it, God's Word, as we think it could be or should be or the way we want it to be. It isn't up to you and me to apply our culture to the Word of God and hope to come up with the way the truth, and the life, we will never find it in that way. It is for us instead to know the Word, to go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. There we will find the way, the truth, and the life, because there, here in this Word, we will find Christ, the truth by which you and I live our lives. The truth then that we take and apply to our culture. That's what it means to be reformed. That's what it means to be a reformer. Are you brave enough to be one? Let's pray. Lord, we will answer that question by saying this. Only by your grace. Only by your grace that you give us so freely in Christ. Will we be brave enough to reform our own lives? Only by your grace will we 
be brave enough to become reformers. Only by your grace will we have the power to do either one. So, Lord, we pray that you would grace us with this desire, this passion, this ability. Lord, the world in which we live right now needs your word so desperately. Everywhere around us, in so many places, we see the world embracing, legislating truths that are absolutely antithetical to the word that you proclaim to us. Lord, sometimes it makes us afraid to stand up for your truth. We're afraid of the consequences, the danger it brings into our lives or the relationships that it might sever. Lord, we're even afraid in these days of uh, punitive harm coming to us. Because we live by your truth and because we love your truth, people say we hate and make it a crime. So Lord, I pray again for your grace. It's the only thing as you apply it to our lives through the power of your spirit that will make us strong and bold, eager to be reformed by your word and eager to be reformers. Lord, we believe this is how you want us to live your li- our lives, and so we pray for the grace to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.